How did the best machine learning practitioners get involved in the field? What challenges have they faced? What has helped them flourish? Let's ask them. Welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. I'm your host, Seth Levine. Welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. Uh, on this episode, it's incredible to have Sebastian Roshka here, lead AI educator at Lightning, former statistics professor at University of Wisconsin, the author of Python Machine Learning Book and Machine Learning with PyTorch and Scikit-Learn, and overall just an amazing force making AI and deep learning more accessible and teaching people how to use AI and deep learning at scale. Uh, welcome. Yeah, uh, thank you for the kind invitation to be here. Very exciting, Seth, uh, to have me here on your podcast. I think it's a relatively new podcast. I'm especially honored to be one of the yeah, uh, first people on this podcast. So I hope we will have a lot of fun, um, hopefully a lot of stuff to talk about because yeah, we work both in machine learning and have a lot of overlapping interests. It's awesome to have you here. To, uh, to get things kicked off, do you want to give us a little bit of a career background, uh, your journey? How'd you get to where you are today in, in the machine learning field? Yeah, that's <laughs> um, how far do you want me to go back? <laughs> when I so maybe as far starting back as with, you want. <laughs> yeah, so I think what uh, how I basically started was um, during was during my undergrad. I got into um, yeah statistics, R, Python programming eventually, and um, I've always been a tinkerer. I kind of I must say I always liked the coding more, let's say, than the math. <laughs> Nonetheless, I always was like somewhere in between the two. So I was never really, a, let's say, a software engineer, but I was also never really a mathematician, if that makes sense. So I was like uh, more like an applied researcher or scientist. Um, and yeah, my background is essentially during my PhD, I worked on computational uh, computational biology problems where. Um, it was usually centered around some prediction task, let's say a uh, virtual screening where we were interested in finding small molecules that inhibit some biological response, let's say related to diseases or other um, types of biological, um, let's say, systems. Uh, in the same way, we were also modeling uh, protein structures and these types of things. And yeah, we did a, well, we had to do a lot of coding, coming up with rules to, let's say, classify things. And um, there was this class when I was in grad school that is it is more than 10 years ago now, I think. <laughs> so it was called statistical uh, pattern recognition. And I was, as so my advisor back then, she recommended me taking that course because, well, it was something where you can maybe automate this prediction type of problem that we had instead of hand coding things, going through things. And I must say, I wrote a lot of brute force for loops in Python to optimize things using, or even using very simple um, optimization libraries. And that was uh, kind of like eye-opening. So that uh, course was mostly focused on Bayesian methods, um, let's say uh, base optimal classifiers and then naive base to make that uh, more feasible and these types of things. But that kind of like introduced me, I would say, to machine learning, like the concept of I mean, it was more statistical learning, but the, the, the concept of learning from data, essentially. And then I took another class, uh, data mining, and that was also the time where Andrew Eng's class was launched on Coursera, the machine learning class, and I got totally hooked. Uh, it was, I mean, in two ways, revolutionary. At first, like working with data, um, like letting computers learn from data automatically, that was super fascinating. At the same time, Coursera as an online uh, learning platform was also super cool as a student, like, wow, I can 
do this at home. I can, uh, I mean, I like going to classes in person, but this was just like also very revolutionary where you had everything at home. You could take the class whenever you wanted. And it was just addicting to take that class. Andrew Eng was such a good teacher. Um, I got really hooked. And yeah, from there, uh, eventually I joined the statistics department at UW Madison in 2018, where I uh, focused on machine learning and deep learning research. And then uh, in 2022, I joined Lightning AI. Um, I, I liked my time as an assistant professor, but uh, things change in machine learning where um, the problems become more challenging and bigger. If you are, let's say, a small team, it's more challenging to keep up um, with, let's say, technology and resources. And like I mentioned before, I'm not, let's say, the typical mathematician type of person. So I like computing. So I was looking for an opportunity where, let's say, I have a team of people and infrastructure to work on a different type of problems and also like how to extend uh, my educational, let's say, passion from just in classroom teaching to also maybe developing an online course, which is what I'm, for example, among other things doing right now. So yeah, I joined Lightning AI, long story short. Um, and yeah, and yeah, back, so since then, I've been really happily uh, working there. I like my time at UW Madison as well, but uh, yeah, you can't do everything all at once, I guess. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's that's a great journey. I I too was captivated by Andrew Ang's uh, Coursera class, as I think a lot of people in machine learning. Uh, so you know, having the experience being a, a professor and now and now working in industry, how would you compare uh, working in academia compared to industry? Yeah, so I would say, um, I wouldn't say one is necessarily better than the other, just very different. Um, I think as in academia, what I especially like, I mean, was uh, this, this is academic um, thing in the air where it's you have freedom to do whatever you want. And, and it's very exciting to be in academia in that sense. Uh, you get to design your own research projects. But with that, um, there are also a lot of um, responsibilities. So you have to write grants, you have to make sure... Every, you are becoming basically a manager. You are managing your small lab. You have research students. You have to make sure, let's say, your research students get paid. You have to then reapply for grants and these types of things, which is, uh, if things go well, it's, well, very satisfying. But um, I must say, as a person who likes doing things, uh, I would like to focus more on the research and, let's say, also the teaching rather than, let's say, writing grants and these types of things. So in that sense, it's very different. You have these responsibilities where you have to do a little bit here and a little bit there. So you are getting drawn into different directions, which I would say is not a bad thing. It's just depending on your personality, whether you prefer that or just to focus on one thing and doing one thing well. I must say... I really like doing research, but uh, one thing I didn't like was a bit, um, let's say, the reviewing system. It's, it's, I think, something everyone complains about, peer reviewing. Um, there's a lot of work to do if you are a peer reviewer. You get a lot of papers for conferences to review. But then also as an author, it can sometimes be a little bit demotivating <laughs> because uh, reviewers are, I would say, sometimes very critical and not always in a constructive way. So sometimes you get this uh, almost mean or hostile comments. And this was something where I was like, hmm, I don't know if I want to do that for the rest of my life. <laughs> Same with grant reviews, um, where sometimes you get these very... Um, for, I don't know, no apparent reason, because sometimes even someone misunderstood your report, you get very mean responses. And I was like, hmm, maybe let me focus more on the good things, the building things, um, teaching, um, and less on, on these types of things. In industry, uh, I mean, there are, of course, other trade-offs, but I would say 
what changed for me is that um, I basically get to focus more on certain things without having to worry about um, other things I, I liked less. I'm not like a manager, basically. So I like to build things and I like uh, also to teach people. So, yeah, I'm glad that I found something where I can focus more on that. Yeah. That's yeah, that's great. Um, speaking of, you know, building things and, and tinkering, do, do you remember one of your first projects uh, in machine learning and what, what attracted to it initially? Yeah, my, my first project in machine learning, I think um, besides let's say, oh, I, I know I think one was maybe a fun one. Um, that was back then when I took this data mining uh, class that I mentioned, um, that was <laughs> a side project because we had to come up with a, a class project for that class. Uh, and by the way, that is also something I um, took inspiration from, from that class. I also always emphasized in my courses to include little class projects. It's always something that uh, students found very exciting. And back then, so there were two things I was uh, working on. As a student, I was working on um, fantasy sports predictions. Back then, I was a big um, soccer fan. Um, and there was like a website where it was called, I forgot the website, but it was fant a daily fantasy sports where uh, you basically assembled a team of players and they got scores based on how well they performed in the Premier League games on the weekend. And so there were, it was basically a constraint optimization problem where you had a certain budget and you wanted to basically maximize, you wanted to predict how many score or what, what the best players are based on the budget, basically. So you couldn't, and there were also other constraints like the formation, you couldn't have 10 strikers, you could only have, I think, maximum three strikers. So it was very interesting. Um, and based on that, I built machine learning classifiers with scikit-learn, very simple ones to basically predict what the promising players were and that was very uh interesting as an exercise because that's how i taught myself pandas the um, um data array library or data uh, data frame library and i tried to automate as much as possible so i was also trying to do some simple nlp um going through news articles basically predicting the sentiment and extracting names from players who, who are injured and these types of things it was very challenging but it was a very good exercise to learn uh, data processing and implementing simple things. But yeah, that was maybe one of my first projects, not related to my PhD at all. It was more like a side project. And also I built something called, um, I, called, I, call, uh, I think it was called Music Mood. I called it Music Mood, which was for this class project where it was about predicting um, the mood of music in terms of, is this a positive, negative song? And um, it originally it was the Happy Rock Song project where we had um, also the genre. So it was genre and the mood. And yeah, I turned this into an open source project. I think I shared, um, web I built like a simple website with Flask where people could enter the movie, um, sorry, the music uh, lyrics and then get a predicted label, whether it's positive or negative. And yeah, that was like a nice little project because it was also like almost like an end-to-end -end project where we had to collect our own data. So it was with two uh, other classmates. We collected our own data, cleaned the data, built the classifiers, and then built that website um, also on top of that. So it was kind of like a yeah, a pretty comprehensive project. Um, the machine learning was pretty simple with scikit-learn. I think we used the random forest classifier, but yeah, a lot of fun, a good exercise, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. I think the best uh, way to get involved is just to find something that you're interested in, you know, create a project, find some data. Uh, you learn a lot of the skills doing it that way, solving problems that you're interested in, right? Um, 
if so I may ask some, you um, uh, before we go to oh, sorry <laughs> if I may ask no, no, yeah, uh, what ahead. was your first uh, machine learning project um, if you can remember like on the spot <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good question um, well one of the first ones that I worked on was a Basically, it was a computer vision project where we wanted to use face recognition or face detection, actually, to control uh, a media player. So mm -hmm. if you looked away, the media mm -hmm. player would stop. If you looked at mm -hmm. it, then the media player would play. And then we started to get into different um, hand recognition. So like mm -hmm. if you put your hand up like this, then it would stop. If like doing mm -hmm. it like that, it would raise the volume. So it was really interesting. I got to learn about all of the, um, you know, different algorithms that are used to do face detection. Um, mm. And I learned so much about computer vision. Uh, mm. For me, the amazing part of that was just, I've, I've always had a really strong background in math. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to take images and converting them into, you know, all n numbers was numbers, just yeah. kind of mm -hmm. mind-boggling. Mind yeah, and then you can do a lot of things yeah. with them. But uh, now that you mentioned that, uh, where I think this um, type of system still lives is uh, if you use, uh, for example, an iPhone, and I think they encode or they hide the text messages until you look at them for like privacy reasons. So I think they're only visible when you look at them. It's kind of like reminded me of your system basically where um, it's basically all the time detecting um, yeah, whether that your face is pointing towards the camera if you're looking. And I think the next level is if it's you who's looking into the camera versus like someone else basically. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting, yeah. Right. Yeah, it was it was cool. It was also really interesting to see when it worked and when it didn't work. Um, you know, we, we trained it on like perfect conditions, right? The lighting mm. was perfect, uh, you know, and things like that. And then as soon as things got, you know, dimmer, it was much harder to detect faces, obviously, or like different, you know, types, different types of people. Um, so yeah, we, we ended up creating like our own training data set. And it, you know, it ended up being a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think that's, I can imagine, that's the best yeah. way to get involved. Yeah, just to find something that you're really interested in. Like we didn't need to do the, uh, you know, um, recognition of our, you know, fingers and hands for that project. But we were just so we were so interested in it. Uh, that we decided to take it like you know one one step further. Mm -hmm. I find that to be the most rewarding when you're doing it, mm -hmm. you know, not just for a class or for a grade. Like you actually are very interested in in the project that you're working mm -hmm. on. Super cool. Um, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. You mentioned like sports and yeah, fantasy sports. That's something that I'm I'm I've been very interested in in the past. And then music also is one of my interests mm -hmm. too. So it's like it, it's 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 awesome to hear that you worked on projects in in those areas um speaking of you know those those sorts of projects are there any other open source projects that uh that, that you've been a contributor for oh i would say um back then i was using a lot of scikit-learn and i also contributed a lot to scikit-learn um in the recent years maybe not as much um because i got busier with other things but yeah back then we had um the ensemble um voting classifier the feature selection, uh, the sequential feature selection, and some other things um, where I got to contribute. And that was a lot of fun. Um, besides that, I 
uh, build like my own little uh, hobby library called ML Extend, which is I think uh, used by a lot of people now because it has this uh, frequent pattern um, mining submodule that a lot of people at companies use. Uh, I always see on the discussion board a lot of companies they have some um, proprietary data set about I don't know some customer item sets data. Um, stuff where they have some questions and it's I think it's very widely used uh, not for machine learning although it has machine learning um, capabilities uh, mostly for the frequent uh, pattern mining um, but yeah this was a library essentially because I built a lot of stuff um, that I needed for my work uh, like little let's say functions here and there for normalizing things and also some other classifiers and so forth where I just thought okay instead of just hiding them on my computer I can make them a little bit more general and then I can share them with the world and then others might find them useful basically and um, yeah I just grew that library over the years just adding and adding to it and the other major one I would say was um, bio, bio pandas where in computational biology we work with these um, protein structure files um, and also small molecule structure files and we were building back then a virtual screening library where we were um, making predictions on, on millions of molecules and um, for that you had to parse these molecules in a way uh, that you could process them and there were a lot of libraries out there that did something like that. They basically had some proprietary, or not proprietary, but some API where they read in these molecule files and then you access the objects in Python, let's say, with a custom API and so forth, which is fine, but it's like, yeah, you have to learn that. It's like a specific library and you have to learn how do you get the number of carbon atoms? How do you, I don't know, get the position, the coordinates of that atom? And it is, I think, yeah, it is a bit... Uh, steep uh, in terms of the learning curve and I thought okay why making that so complicated um, if we just had a way we can load that protein structure file into a pandas data frame I can just use everything that's already in available uh, that's already there in pandas I don't have to reinvent the function to compute the let's say the center of mass using the coordinates I can use all the functions standard deviations mean everything that is in, in pandas and to make that more convenient so it's essentially a library where you can convert protein structure files into a pandas data frame and then you can you can do machine learning you can do statistics everything on top of that without having to relearn um, let's say a custom api it's basically all in a pandas data frame um, and other than that, awesome. I would say, yeah, these were my main libraries where I contributed to um, or that I built basically from scratch back then. But then uh, over the years, um, I did a lot of open source stuff, but not necessarily uh, libraries. What I did more was um, education, I would say, like writing blog posts, um, explaining things, um, PyTorch uh, and scikit-learn related tutorials or things like, hey, let's implement a principal component analysis from scratch or let's uh, implement a self-attention mechanism from scratch and like writing the code, uh, but not necessarily as a library because I think there are already a lot of efficient implementations out there. So it doesn't really make sense to <laughs> reinvent the wheel, but it's more about like, let's right. peel back a few layers, make a very simple um, implementation of that so that people can read them. Because that's one thing, uh, deep learning libraries are becoming more powerful if we look at um, PyTorch, for example but they are also becoming much, much, much harder to read. So if I would ask you to take a look at the convolution operation in PyTorch, 
I wouldn't even understand. I wouldn't even know where to look in PyTorch <laughs> to start with. It's like, right? It, it, I mean, for good reason because they implemented it very efficiently, and then there's CUDA on top of that and stuff like that. But as a user, if I want to customize or even understand things, it's it's very hard to look at the code. So in that case, I think there's value in um, peeling back the layers, uh, making a simple Im implementation for educational purposes to understand how things work. Um, so that's something I. Yeah, I've also liked doing in recent years, which is why I maybe didn't contribute so much to the core libraries. I was more like um, focusing on on the coding for education, essentially. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I appreciate a lot of the writing that you've done. Uh, I really in, enjoy your blog. Um, I think you have a newsletter that I'm following now, too. Oh. <laughs> I'm looking forward to your, your new book that's coming out. Mm -hmm. um, Q Q and AI. What's, well, what's I, the title? Uh, machine learning Q and AI. <laughs> so I can maybe say a few words about yes. that. So this is essentially yeah. um, it started because uh, I what I do is when I read or learn things, I have for myself. I have I have flashcards. Uh, basically, I write down uh, questions and answers for myself. Uh, so just I mean usually. Uh, I when you write them down, that process helps you learn these things. And maybe you rarely have to go back to your flashcards because, I mean, it's not about the memorization necessarily. It's more about making the question. But then also it kind of feels good when um, you feel like you have read a paper or a book and then you made these questions for future use so you know you have them written down somewhere. Just in case you forget, they are there as flashcards in my right. software so I can look them up. And uh, people on the internet, um, they ask me sometimes to share these um, flashcards and what i did is i thought okay why not but let me polish them a little bit up because when i write things for myself they are usually not that nice <laughs> they are also i mean containing grammar errors or typos and I was like hmm, let me polish them make them a little bit more clear so that someone else can read them and in that process um these notes became longer and longer so they became like fully fledged um answers some of them like i don't know i just was in the mood of writing and then some of them were like four or five pages long um and yeah so so one question would be for example what's the difference between uh an embedding a latent space and um things like that essentially or when are fully connected layers and convolution layers equivalent and all types of questions or what is the difference between self-attention and the traditional attention mechanism in rnns what are the multiple GPU training paradigms like um, tensor parallelism, data parallelism, and so forth? And the answers, they, they tended to become longer and longer and longer. And I was like, okay, instead of just, um, I mean, this, these are not flashcards anymore. These are basically book chapters. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I could just <laughs> basically turn that into a book. Um, and yeah, it's basically machine learning Q&A because... Um, it's like a Q and A, it's a question and an answer. But then also it was interesting there is um, ChatGPT now, so <laughs> an AI doing right. the answers. And as a little gimmick, um, I thought, hmm, uh, because it just came out, why don't I include also the answers by uh, ChatGPT? As an, so I have my own answer followed by the ChatGPT answer and a short discussion. And then readers can tell or can, let's say, judge for themselves which answer is let's say more um appropriate or <laughs> accurate so what i but so one thing of course ChatGPT um cannot create figures and these types of things so it's kind of a little bit unfair but i must say for my comparison what was very interesting is that when i wrote the answer i had usually a very long answer ChatGPT was way way shorter sometimes or yeah i would say if you have 10 10 items 
I would say three items are wrong. ChatGPT answers contain sometimes factually incorrect things. It's easy for a domain expert to weed them out. However, what, what was nice about ChatGPT is it sometimes came up with things I didn't think about. When I, for example, asked about what are some ways we can deal or can improve or reduce, let's say, overfitting. What are some techniques for reducing overfitting? I had quite a long list, explained everything, asked um, ChatGPT, it had some, let's say, wrong answers, but some of them I didn't even think about. Um, and so that was nice. So it's essentially creating um, false positives, but it's also having these uh, true positives, let's say, that you missed. So it's, in a sense, actually pretty good for brainstorming, I would say. It's actually a pretty good uh, writing companion. You still have to know a bit about the field because, yeah, these errors, if I wouldn't know about, let's say, machine learning, it could be dangerous because it would give me wrong information. But if you, right. yeah, if you look for inspiration, I do think it's a valuable tool, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was about to say that I've been using, I, I use ChatGPT as like a brainstorm assistant um mm. you know it can help you with drafts it can help you you know write outlines and things like that but yeah there there is that danger right you're a, a machine learning expert you know reading about it and you're able to quickly pick out you know say whatever 20 30 percent of this information might not be factually correct and it does become dangerous when there's someone looking at it and looking at it as an authority right seeing mm. the, seeing the output and thinking that it's like it's it's probably going to be correct um yeah so i mean talking to someone in nlp and machine learning we we brought up chat gpt uh it, it took us a little bit but uh i guess we could dive into it now <laughs> yeah there's um, no way to avoid it nowadays the, <laughs> no can't can't avoid it um, yeah. <laughs> I know you've been in the field and, you know, you, you've seen, uh, the progression, you know, it's this, it seems as if it's like this overnight success, right. You know, going to a million users in, in a, in a couple of days, but obviously this has been years, years in the making, um, where I want to start off with is how do you view the gap between the hype of, uh, something like chat GPT and the generative models now? and the reality uh, of AI. Yeah, so it's interesting. I would say <laughs> ChatGPT um, did a good job in terms of closing the gap because honestly, I must say it works pretty well and it is impressive. I don't know like how far it scales in terms of would we, I mean, we can always improve things, but I don't know what... Um, let's say the the rate is of how we can make it better i guess related to the hype um i think there's a lot of it's like a sell the same with um self-driving cars i guess where five years ago they already had pretty uh impressive demos i haven't seen to be honest um i mean the thing that they don't show you is what they have right now that is not released yet but i do think it's usually the last few percent that are crucial i think with self-driving cars we have been it's just a number i don't know for sure but i would say we have been there for like 95 percent now like in, in five years ago it was almost let's say 95 percent there almost let's say ready now five years later we are maybe there at 97 percent or 98 percent but can can we get the right. two last remaining percent points to really nail it basically to have them on the roads reliably and so forth 
And that is hard to say with um, large language models as well. I think we can reduce um, the factually incorrect information, make them more useful and so forth. I just don't know how, let's say, how much work it takes to get just a few more percent more better performance. We will see with uh, the next generation, let's say the, the GPT-4 models and so forth, if they apply then also the reinforcement learning with human feedback on in the loop on top of it, if it's substantially better, um, like the same like from GPT-2 to GPT-3, maybe it's the same from 3 to right. 4 where we get, again, mind blown. Um, but yeah, that is one thing. Hmm. Um, the other thing is I think people are chasing, like hype-wise, they see ChatGPT and they're chasing um, AGI, uh, like uh, artificial general intelligence. Right. Yeah, that is an interesting question. I think uh, no one knows how far we are from AGI. Um, with ChatGPT, I think there's a lot more hype uh, around AGI. It appears closer than before, of course, because we have these models. There are people, though, who say, okay, this is uh, the totally wrong approach. Um, we need something completely different if we want to get AGI. No one knows what that approach looks like, so it's really hard to say. That's the thing. If If something hasn't been there before or it doesn't even exist, it's hard to predict when it will exist it's like um it's really hard basically to make right. any reliable or any any statement about that I, I would say the the thing though what i always find interesting is do we need agi that, that, that more like a philosophical <laughs> question i think agi is useful as a motivation i, I think it uh, motivates a lot of people to work on ai uh, to make that progress i think with without agi we wouldn't have maybe things like I don't know, like, um, what was it called? The, the uh, AlphaGo, where they uh, had breakthrough. Uh, they basically beat the best uh, player at Go. Maybe chess, even back then right. chess. And how is that useful? I would say maybe AlphaGo and chess engines are not useful, but I think it ultimately lead, led to um, AlphaFold, uh, the first version, uh, for protein structure prediction. And then AlphaFold 2, which is right. now based on large language models what uses large language models. So in that case, I think without large language models and without um, the desire maybe to develop AGI, we wouldn't have also all the, let's say, very useful things in, in the natural sciences. And so my question is, like, do we need AGI or do we really just need good models for special purposes? For example, if I want to, I mean, there was like a paper the other day, uh, accurate weather prediction um, with deep learning, like more accurate than the best physics-based simulations that run on supercomputers with a smaller, let's say more, um, not smaller, but with a more energy efficient uh, neural network and more accurate. So maybe that is sufficient. Maybe we don't need an AGI that can also predict the weather. Maybe it's better to just focus on improving that weather prediction engine and separately improving the protein structure prediction uh, model AlphaFold. Maybe we don't need to chase something that can do all the things at once. However, I do think AGI is useful as a motivator to find better algorithms. Um, so it's um, in terms of hype, I, I think uh, I'm personally... I don't see the the purpose of AGI. Maybe I'm, um, yeah, I'm uh, too short-sighted here. Uh, sighted here. Um, I would say, what would we do with AGI besides what people say about replacing humans? I don't know how that really, you know, benefits compared to special-purpose um, applications of machine learning. Yeah. Right. 
I mean, you, you brought up so many interesting points. I don't even know where to go next. Um, but let's, let's talk about, um, let's talk about the use cases for, um, you know, for, for generative models. So you were mentioning basically, which I love this point where we're able to get these models up to a certain level of performance, right? Say you can get a model to 90% or 95%. But it's that last five percent that are that's so hard, and it's like the closer you're getting to that hundred percent, it's like even hard. It's even harder. It's it's even it's even harder. It makes me think about you know like when you're training a machine learning model, any model, say like even like a text classifier, and you have your F one score at say like you know point eight five. You know how much work can you really do to get it that that much higher? But I, I wanted to take a step back, and I wanted to talk about basically. Um, Generative models, it's a, I think there's a lower threshold. So like error can be okay depending on your use case, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're if you're using it for something like just to make a draft, it doesn't need to be a hundred percent correct because if you're making marketing content, let's say, you know that could be the product. It, mm. I, I'm seeing now Wix uh, is offering like a complete generative, you know, using generative models to create your whole website. That's amazing. Right. Mm -hmm. That solves the cold start problem. It gives you so many options you can build you can build off of it. But then there's the other part. There's, you know, there's predictive models where you're mm -hmm. say you're categorizing something um and you need it to be very close to a, you know a hundred percent correct, you know, de depending on your use case. Mm. Um yeah. And then you bring up AGI. Um, artificial general intelligence. I think everybody thinks about it a little bit differently. You know, everybody has like a different sense of it. Everyone has a different definition. Like, are we trying to replicate humans? Are we trying to make things? Uh, are we trying to replicate human intelligence? If that's the case, then I I personally don't think that large language models is the way to go. There are certain things that I think about, like, from GPT-2 to GPT-3, one thing that's very interesting are when you, by orders of magnitude, add all these parameters, uh, there are these emergent capabilities, yeah, yeah. which mm -hmm. is like, you know, really interesting. Yeah. Um, I think in one of them, like, you're reading so much of the English language, so you're going to learn, you know, how to make grammatically correct sentences, mm -hmm. and then you're going to learn, you know, different relationships between things. And all of that stuff is amazing, but there's more to it. I I, I think than mm. than that. Just being able to predict, you know, the the next word, mm. the reinforcement and human in the loop piece of it is definitely gonna, as you were saying, minimize the amount of factually incorrect responses. Mm. Um, but yeah, what what do you think? Do you do you think that um that the our goal should be to try to replicate human intelligence or do you think we should be specializing in certain systems or certain use cases i personally i think um i mean for the sake of uh developing more efficient um, learning algorithms or alternative learning algorithm algorithms i do think it makes sense to um in, get inspired by let's say repli replicating human intelligence but I would say if it doesn't work, that's fine too. I mean, this, I mean, the classic example is really airplanes or um, submarines, where airplanes are inspired by birds. Like, hey, birds can fly; they have wings. Um, can we build something similar? 
turns out the airplane, yeah, it's very different. It doesn't flap the wings, but it is it gets the job done, right? So in the case, we don't need to right. mimic uh, how birds fly. And in the same sense, we probably don't have to mimic um, how, let's say, humans learn and think. Although I do think it it would help understanding that because there might be more inspiration that we can use for these models. One thing is also related to that, uh, ensemble methods are, uh, so building an ensemble of different methods is usually something to improve, uh, how you can, let's say, make more robust and accurate predictions. And ensemble methods usually work best if you have an ensemble of different methods, if there's no correlation in terms of how they work, so they um, are not redundant, basically. So that is also one argument why it makes sense to maybe approach the problem from different angles to produce totally different systems that we can then combine. I think that's also interesting from the perspective of how people try to implement large language models as part of a search engine, because I feel like, yeah, we don't, so it's kind of like related to artificial intelligence, uh, general intelligence, where maybe we don't need one system that solves it all, because for example, with um, ChatGPT, it can do math. Uh, it's some of the emergent capabilities that you mentioned, uh, but it's not useful for simple math. Like if you say multiply 13 by 100 by, let's say 13 by 117 or something like that, it's maybe not useful to use ChatGPT for that. We have a calculator that can do that accurately. That doesn't need to be exactly. trained. There are simple rules. Yeah. Uh, so in that case, what we need is more like identification of what we need to get the job done. So maybe having, um, you know, like Siri, um, what Siri is doing is um, it's parsing the language. I mean, it, besides the fact that it doesn't work well, but let's say it would work better at, in parsing <laughs> your input. What, would, what it does, it's rerouting your input to the appropriate application on your phone. I think if you say set a timer, it will use the timer app on your phone. Or if, I don't know, if you do a calculation, right. it will use the calculator app. So it's not trying to do everything it, itself. It's uh, trying to delegate. And I think with AI, I think that's the same thing. If we ask it to maybe compose text, the AI itself might be the best uh, way to do that. If we want factual information, maybe sometimes just um, extracting information from an existing Wikipedia page might be more efficient than um, having right. itself uh, answering that. So it's not. I'm not saying it's uh, not necessary to use an LLM, but the LLM here would be more efficient at going to that website and summarizing the text rather than rewriting that text, basically, if you are looking for an answer. Um, so, and I think that is one thing we could focus on, on how to basically delegate more efficient, efficiently and building an AI that, um, let's say, delegates rather than tries to solve everything, um, in, in my opinion. And uh, also to your point, yeah. the AI doesn't even have to be correct all the time when um, creating text as long as we use it for uh, as a template, basically, not as the end product. So I think ChatGPT, the main uh, use is for me, how I use it is, is to help me write texts, but I'm filling in the blanks. I'm not like, if I want a text about something, I usually write the text myself before. Then I say, hey, ChatGPT, rewrite this. And I see if I like it more or less. I take certain sentences and then I even tweak them afterwards. I'm not really literally copy and pasting anything or in the same way with information so there was another uh, llm i think it was called galaxy something where or galactica, galactica. I think galactica yeah galactica where they had um an ai or llm that was writing research papers i think there was like this misconception that um you let it write the whole research paper i see it more as something that writes the template for a research paper it's more like 
I would say, a sophisticated template builder. Um, I think it would have been better if yeah. it wouldn't fill in numbers or any factual information. It would leave blanks, you know, like so that it's more clear yeah. to a human, like, hey, you have to fill in the numbers and the details. And they're not provided by the machine learning AI system, basically. So I think, yeah, having these model, it, it's essentially about using them responsibly, essentially. Yeah, Yeah, you, you bring up so many interesting points. I, I to, to talk about like the different tasks that you want to complete, I see a future where... Um, yeah, depending on what prompt, basically you 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 know are asking, you could use something that's rule based, or it could pull up the correct tool. You know, the correct tool, the I don't know, sibling or predecessor of ChatGPT, Instruct GPT, sort mm -hmm. of was going into that. How you can take an initial prompt and then have some follow ups. That's what's really nice about ChatGPT as well. That you can sort of take the output and you can say, make it longer, you know, mm -hmm. you know, make, make it shorter. Um, I saw another recent paper tool former basically showing mm -hmm. some examples of how to use tools, you know, that yeah. you, you can basically combine the power of large language models and um, you know, using third party tools. Mm -hmm. I think it's this ability to sort of find that hybrid approach, right? Mm -hmm. When when can when are rules the, the right approach and when should you be using more advanced systems? Which is kind of like always a you know, always a question, right? Can you make yeah, it, you know, can you make it simpler? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like this uh, saying, like, if you um, have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think this is right now a little bit true with um, ChatGPT, because we just have fun with it. It's like, oh, let me see if it can do this and that. But it doesn't mean we should be using it for everything. And yeah, now it's the question is basically the next level would be how to uh, basically when to use AI and when not to use AI, basically. So yeah, because right now we are using AI for a lot of things because it's exciting and we want to see how far we can push it um, until it, let's say, breaks or doesn't work. But yeah, sometimes we have nonsensical applications of AI because of that. Um, like, yeah, like training a calculator, a, a new network that can do calculation. That doesn't really make sense. <laughs> but there are ex uh, examples where right. uh, I think reinforcement learning found a more efficient matrix uh, multiplication algorithm, more like the the algorithm itself finding that. That makes sense, uh, something you as a human wouldn't think about, but we wouldn't let it do the mat matrix multiplication itself because you know, it's not deterministic in a sense. So you don't know if it's... Um, going to be correct or not depending on your inputs and there are definite rules that we can use so why making it let's say approximate when we can have it accurate yeah yeah um i think that that's something in the machine learning field that's really such an interesting area that deserves more research um you know understanding machine learning models are going to make predictions mm -hmm. right like there are systems where it might not, it doesn't have high enough confidence to make a prediction, but when it makes a prediction, usually it's like, it's usually binary. Like it's usually like mm. it's, it's, it made a prediction. This is what it thinks the answer is, but it doesn't give you that, like that confidence level. You know how, like when you're talking with a human, you can kind of tell how confident someone is when they're, when they're saying something, when they're saying it, or they might validate it. They might say, Oh, I think I heard about this. Mm that that's lost when you yeah, are talking and, uh, with chat yeah. gpt mm -hmm. yeah yeah and on top of that uh, one thing is also there's a whole branch of research on um that net neural networks are typically overconfident on out of distribution data so w what happens is if you have data that is slightly different from your training data or 
um, let's say, out of the distribution, the network will, if, if you program it to give a, a confidence score as uh, part of the output, this score for the data where it's especially wrong is usually overconfident. It's over, let's say, estimating, um, estimating its confidence, which makes it even more dangerous. So um, even the confidence yeah. score, let's say, is not it's misleading if it's uh, a tricky problem, which is kind of like ironic or paradoxical even. I mean, it's it's kind of an interesting research problem. I mean, there are methods that try to address that, but yeah, it's not out of the box. It's a lot of extra effort to, I mean, it's an ongoing research field. So yeah, like you said, even but even if we had the, over, uh, the confidence scores, it would be hard to use them or trust them. Um, but also you bring up a good point. Um, so ChatGPT doesn't give us any confidence uh, about anything, but then there's also, I mean, you know, even better example, I think uh, where it's more clear is this um, classifier they developed to classify whether uh, ChatGPT, yeah. or no, whether text is uh, written by an AI or a human, where they have different labels like uh, likely or not likely generated by an AI or something like that. And yeah, it's just a label. So you trust it or not. And for example, when I uh, used uh, Shakespeare Macbeth texts in there, it predicted it was likely generated by AI. It's just a label. And well, what do you do with that? It's like totally wrong, right. but uh, because yeah, Shakespeare um, was around when, yeah, way before <laughs> uh, AI was a thing. But yeah, so there's another approach. It's called GPT-0, where um, the researcher who developed that just gives you a score. It's only the... Um, perplexity score and then you as a human you have to compare it and think about it which is maybe a better approach than just giving a label but yeah you bring up a good point it's um we just take it for granted or we just take a score and yeah um we use it and it's maybe out of convenience because that's the simplest user interface but with uh things like machine learning yeah it is depending on the application uh yeah tricky yeah and i think that's definitely a problem that machine learning practitioners should try to address, but it's, it's, it's extremely difficult, right? Especially as humans, we're trying to interpret these very complex, you know, machine learning, deep learning models and something like an, something that's out of distribution and it's trying to make a prediction on it and you get a prediction and the prediction's high confidence. And it's like that, that doesn't even, you know, yeah. it's like, why? Oh, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't even make sense. It's that, it's a little, it's a, it's a, it's a little scary because sometimes like, so take an active learning system where mm. you're going to label samples that have low confidence. Mm. And then like those are, those high confidence ones are just going to slip yeah. through. Yeah. In that case, yeah, it would be yeah. achieving totally the opposite of what you want um, because yeah, it will give you the high confidence for the ones that you actually need to label because they are so different. It's yeah, it's uh yeah, it's essentially um, antagonistic or adversarial. Um, yeah. Yeah. It. I mean, it makes you think about just how. I mean, how many moving parts there are, you mm -hmm. know, with with machine learning and just trying to understand. It's so important to understand every aspect of it. It's not just the algorithm. It's not mm -hmm. just. Um, you know, the newest language models. Sometimes it's like common sense things, understanding the data, understanding the output. What, you know, why are you making this? How is it going to be used? Mm. Those sort, those sorts of things. 
And I want to say Speaking we are complaining here. Oh, oh, yes. Sorry. I'm, I'm just, I wanted to say no, no, we are complaining about this here, um, that machine learning uh, systems make these mistakes and we don't get the scores and we don't interpret them. Uh, it is, uh, I mean, it's something to think about, I wanted to say, but it is challenging. It is not that, um, I would say, people who are working on this, um, they are trying their best. Um, they put a lot of effort into improving that and make getting the best out of it as possible. It is just such a hard problem that um, I think, yeah, it needs more time and work. We are trying to do the best we can, or most researchers are doing the best they can when they release the products. It's just such a hard problem. Uh, so I, I would say we, uh, there's no one to blame about that. It's just how hard this problem is. And yeah, um, so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, of course. I didn't mean to say to say no, it no, in that yeah. sense. There, there's an interesting yeah. there's an interesting trend that I've found actually with machine learning practitioners after they work in the field for a certain amount of time. Many then shift their focus into like AI ethics, which is mm. exactly trying to address these yeah. type these types of problems. Mm. Uh, which which I which I, I I find that to be you know very very interesting. And mm. the more I work. In, in this field, you know, you have to think, you have to think about those, you have to mm. think about those things. Mm. Yeah, no, that's um, actually a good point, because I think it makes a lot of sense to, um, let's say, start with machine learning and then go into AI ethics, because then you basically get exposed to all the problems that exist. But you also notice that it's maybe not so trivial, because I think it's easy to say, well, this is not good and this is a problem. Uh, fixing it is the more difficult problem, really. Like, um, And I think yeah, experiencing the maybe frustration around machine learning, that's a good way to also yeah, be prepared for what's possible and what not and what could we do. And I, I think, yeah, it is frustrating sometimes to work with machine learning systems because we train these classifiers and then we we see exactly, okay, this gets this uh, input wrong, and but we don't know why, why this particular input. We can maybe include more training examples of this particular input. We improve the system. It doesn't get this one any uh, wrong anymore, but then it gets something else wrong instead. And it's like really like uh, you're trying to fix one thing, the other thing breaks, and it's, yeah, it is very, very challenging. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's very, very tricky problems. And... Uh... It's nice to, you know, have the chance to discuss this with somebody that's kind of dealt with these problems. And yeah, it, it makes sense after you are applying machine learning and understanding maybe some of the pitfalls to then transition into some more of like the AI ethics sort of sorts of questions. Um, to, to change things up, not really though, um, <laughs> but in the spirit of learning from machine learning, um, let's zoom back to someone who's just starting out in the field. Um, mm. what, what advice would you give to someone that's just starting out in machine learning? Mm, I would say, uh, yeah, that's, um, yeah, um, tricky. <laughs> I don't want to give anyone uh, wrong advice, but I would say, um, I, machine learning is a big, big field. I think, uh, even like what we just covered, there are so many uh, moving parts that are involved. And I mean, even zooming back, we have predictions we have generative models we have computer vision we have natural language processing and all kinds of different fields and then for each for each field we have different approaches for generative modeling we have let's say just for images we have autoencoders um, diffusion models generative adversarial networks and so forth and they are all kind of like almost fundamentally different in terms of how they work and it, it can be very 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 overwhelming uh, i think when um when you start out so I would say 
honestly, I would start with the book or a course and just work through that with, I would say, almost with a blindness on, not getting distracted by um, other, let's say, resources at that point, just working through that. Um, because I think that's uh, it happens to me all the time. I get distracted by something else. I look it up and then it's like a rabbit mm -hmm. hole. And then you feel like, wow, there's so much to learn. And then you get frustrated and overwhelmed because it's like, oh, the day only has 24 hours. I can't possibly ever learn it all. Uh, so I think really doing one thing at a time, like step by step, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, I would say. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I think I would say... Yeah, take it slowly. Enjoy it. Make make sure you're fun. Um, try not to do all at once. Um, yeah, and maybe also finding a balance between trying things out or maybe implementing some ideas in a project after reading about them, um, and then going back to reading about more things, trying them out. So like having a balance between soaking up knowledge also and um, trying out um, things you learned about. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Uh... It's interesting when some when someone asks me like oh how can I get it how can I learn about machine learning there's no shortage of mm -hmm. resources out there right there's no shortage of new material coming out mm -hmm. um, but it's sort of like hacking through the the, the weeds and staying on a path to get mm -hmm. yourself to a point where you can understand a certain level of the basics you don't need to know every paper that's coming out mm -hmm. daily right it's not mm -hmm. necessary yep. it's much more important to understand the basics so you're setting yourself up for a future of, mm -hmm. of success basically in in a similar vein um if you have anything what what's one piece of advice that, that you've received that has helped you along your machine learning journey oh uh, that's a good question um Top of my head, uh, I wouldn't have a good, let's say, advice someone, let's say, partic uh, gave particular to uh, like uh, to me. But I would say going back to the Andrew Eng class that we talked about in the beginning, um, I, I think something uh, Andrew Eng always said in his classes was, uh, "If you don't understand this part, don't worry about it." <laughs> and I think that's uh, a good right. saying. Is like um, <laughs> maybe um, if we don't understand a certain thing, maybe let's not worry about it just yet just that i don't know some some things are more important than others um also when we specialize i think like letting go of some things to make room for other things it's for me i worked on some more mathematical papers where we had uh where we proved theorems and so forth um like the ordinary regression papers we worked on which was fun but i for example i know that i'm not that good at proving theorems because i'm more like an person who enjoys coding and for proving theorems you have to sometimes sit there for days or weeks <laughs> and stare at it until you get some inspiration um and this is right. not for me and i think that's okay um i would say not getting frustrated i guess <laughs> saying okay this is not for me recognizing that um focusing on my other strengths and yeah that, that would be something like uh don't worry about it oh sorry i almost knocked off this thing here but let's say what Andrew Eng <laughs> no, said not good. worry about yeah. it that is like something i think that kind of relieved yeah, me i would it's, say it's a small th yeah it's a small thing that's really nice because when he was when andrew ang was going through say a proof for something or showing all the mathematics behind gradient descent or you know how changing the weights or or back propagation and things like that 
you don't need to know every single detail right then and there. You might not ever really need to know every detail, but understanding the getting and gaining an intuition. And that's what, that's what Andrew Wang always used to say, gaining that intuition and getting that gut feeling and things like that. That's what's going to help you um, along the way. Um, yeah, that is other, good, other than good Andrew Wang. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to say exactly no, you what you continue, said. Yeah. Uh, like I wanted to like say what you brought up. A very good point is, yeah, you should of course make sure you understand the bigger picture and intuition uh, in, in a certain way. But yeah, the details are sometimes implementation details. I would say, but like you said, yeah, um, recognizing when it's time to focus on the big picture and when it's time to dive in and really making sure you don't have to dive into everything, basically. Also, a very good exercise is to implement things from scratch, um, like reading about, let's say, decision trees and then implementing decision trees from scratch. Uh, for example, that's one homework I usually give where um, students have to code a CART decision tree or a C4.5 tree from scratch, which is a good learning exercise, but I wouldn't say do that for every algorithm because if you do that, yeah, you would get stuck. You would never really uh, move forward because it takes a lot of time. It takes weeks to do that. And life is also in a way um, short if you spend your whole time re-implementing old algorithms. Um, yeah, that, that's also not a good way of spending time, I think. It's like being selective, I think, also. Focusing on the big picture, sometimes diving in, but not diving into the details of everything. Right. Um, yeah, one of my professors... And during my master's, he had us by hand, you know, step by step going through back propagation for neural networks. Oh, that and sounds it fun. Was like, you know, you're, you're beating your head against the wall and, you know, it's, it's very frustrating and it's not like you ever need to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's something about even just doing it once that you do just kind of gain, you know, a, a better sense of it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, at first the details aren't that important, you know, future, future, you know, when you're in industry and you're trying to get a model into production, I mean, sometimes things are so abstracted that you don't necessarily like need to, which is, could be a good thing or a bad thing, mm -hmm. right? Cause it's fine if there's no problems, but it quickly becomes a bad thing when, uh, when you start to run into some issues and you're not even, and you don't really understand, you know, what's, what's going on with your model. But yeah, I mean, at first, it's it's more, much more important to get the in broad strokes, just sort of get a handle of of what's going on, building up that foundation so you can understand you know everything. You can't you can't learn recurrent neural networks you know without understanding what a decision tree is, right? Like it's mm. just like it's it's not you just you can't. There's certain things it just it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense like. You should start with logistic regression. You know, just, oh, yeah. just do it, right? And good, then... good advice. Yeah, I would say always start with even if you know more sophisticated techniques. Um, if we go back to what we talked about with large language models, even if it makes more sense, even for a classification problem, to fine tune a large language model for that, I would start like you said with a simple logistic regression classifier, maybe back of words model to just get a baseline, like something where you are confident it's very yeah. simple and it works. Let's say using scikit-learn before trying the more complicated things. It's not only because we don't want to use the complicated things because the simple ones are efficient. It's more about also even checking our solutions. Like if our fine-tuned model, our, let's say, BERT uh, LLM performs worse than the logistic regression classifier, 
maybe we have a bug in our code, maybe we didn't process the input correctly, tokenized it correctly. It's usually always a good idea to, I, I think, to really start simple and then um, increasingly get complicated um, or improve, let's say, improve by adding things instead of um, starting complicated and then trying to debug the complicated solution to find out what, where the error is, essentially. Right. Even if worst case scenario, if you use a very simple model, you just got it, you just have a baseline, right? Mm -hmm. Just like a, a sanity yeah. baseline yeah. To, to work off of. Um, so other than Andrew Ang, who we both <laughs> obviously admire, um, who are who are some other people in the machine learning field um, that you you know gain inspiration from or that that have influenced you? Mm, good question. Um, I would say because I also recently enjoyed uh, some of the educational material by uh, Andrew Capati. Uh, what he reminds me always is that it's fun to code things and it's like very contagious uh, if you see someone um, having fun coding things up. So that's something I did very early on in my blog where I implemented a principal component analysis from scratch or linear discriminant analysis, other things. Uh, I always used to implement things from scratch, but over the years I've become more, I would say, conceptual um, because things got more complicated. I was focusing more, uh, let's say, on implementing an end-to-end -end system and then not, let's say, doing the step-by-step -step coding. And his recent um, stuff yeah, reminded me of how much fun it actually is to do things um, from scratch. So that's like one inspiration, I would say. Um, or other people, I would say... Hmm. Maybe Paige Bailey, because she always has so much fun on, let's say, social media. It's like also to remind you, I don't know, whatever you do, have fun, like enjoy, share the share the joy, you know, like that is, I think, also important to keep in mind that, well, uh, things are sometimes complicated and I don't know, work can be intense. We want to get things done, but don't forget also maybe just to stop and enjoy sometimes like to, you know, share the successes, have spread some fun stuff, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of starting things from scratch, well, I think of it. I was able to read your uh, your recent blog, "Understanding and Coding Self Attention Mechanisms of Large Language Models from Scratch," and yeah, just uh, I mean, yeah, we were talking about some of that going into it and understanding, you know, the similarities between cross attention and, and self attention. Um, it, it's it's really interesting to go down to like the more basic principles and to see things from the code. And I, how do I say it? It's like in production and like in when you're deploying models, you don't want to reinvent the wheel, right? Yeah, you want exactly. Right. Battle tested. You mm -hmm. want battle yep. tested things. Mm -hmm. But yep. when you're trying to understand something conceptually, mm -hmm. it's really nice to 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 understand it from scratch. Mm. Yeah, excellent point. And then uh, so, to yeah. your second point, yeah. yeah, yeah, we really want to emphasize that. Like, I think for <laughs> real-world applications, don't try to reinvent the wheel. I think, yeah, that is a lot of work and also risky. Uh, but it is, like you said, it is good for learning. It's especially good for learning. Actually, uh, one thing I like is also. Um, so I build sometimes things both ways. So when I want to implement something, I um, do the most naive implementation ever, like where I just use very plain, simple Python code, write some unit tests, 
to know because I want this and this output. And then I try to make it more efficient. So like adding more efficiency to that to see if I can improve things. That's what I do usually for things that don't exist yet. But for things that exist, you can actually use mm -hmm. what is already out there and then kind of like use that as a unit test almost and then try to make your implementation similar to that. But yeah, like you said, done maybe use from scratch implementations if there's an existing solution. Um, only it's for learning purposes right. essentially, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then, yeah, to, to your second point uh, from before, it's important, you know, to have fun, right? Yeah. And you know, to realize <laughs> that, you know, lear lear learning learning can be, you know, it should be enjoyable and mm. expanding your knowledge is so, is so important. Um, so to, to conclude, uh, learning from machine learning, the last, you know, real meaty question um, what has a career in machine learning taught you about life? Mm, I would say, what did it tell? I would say it's like, yeah, be, uh, being patient because there's so much out there. Um, so it's like, can't learn it all at once. Take, uh, take it one step at a time, but like what we just talked about, uh, making sure we enjoy, um, what we're doing. But then also what I think, uh, what machine learning taught me, especially in the last couple of years is things are changing quickly. Um, so in that sense, uh, it's kind of like counter to what we just said, like taking things slowly, but it's also be open to sure. change, um, you know, like be open to new experiences. Like it could be anything, like from job-related things to location-wise where we live, uh, what our hobbies are. And that is something like related to machine learning in the sense that there are so many new methods coming out there. Um, things change completely. We were using GANs two years ago and now we're using, uh, are using diffusion models. It's like being open to things and open to change. And yeah, I don't know, like trying it out, um, making sure maybe we don't like it, we don't have to use it. Um, it's the same with life, like trying new experiences, I think. That's great. Yeah, I think being patient when when you need to be patient, but also just sort of accepting that we are living in a very fast, fast moving world where, where, th where things are changing. So being open to change. And like machine learning, um, everything gets special, better with time, yeah. with more training epochs, essentially. <laughs> so maybe hopefully uh, <laughs> when we like with life experiences and stuff like that, things get better usually, I hope. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Sebastian, it's been such a pleasure uh, talking to you. If if there are some listeners out there who want to learn more about your work, um, where could they go if, to reach out or, or to find out more about you? Um, I think my website would be the best um, uh, place because there I have links to everything else. <laughs> so yeah, my uh, website is essentially <laughs> my first name, last name.com, SebastianRashka.com. It's maybe a little bit difficult to um, spell <laughs> in, in the sense of... Uh, it's easier if you maybe see a link. So it's uh, my first name, last name.com. I'll have it in the show are, notes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and because uh, it's a very long name. <laughs> Otherwise, um, I'm yeah very active on social media. Uh, most of them, basically, like Twitter, Mastodon, LinkedIn. Um, so mo on most platforms, I'm uh, R A S B T. So that is actually ba uh, back. It's weird because it's back then uh, on Twitter there was a character limit. Uh, where the Twitter handle was cutting into that character limit. So I try to keep it as short as possible. Five letters. It's basically the first two letters of my last name, R-A, and then S-B-T as in, my, as in Sebastian. So R-A-S-B-T. So I'm that on GitHub, or tw Twitter, and some other platforms. So yeah, if you want to reach out on social media, I'm 
pretty much everywhere <laughs> maybe too much but i must say oh, that sorry. is also one thing over the years i've been on social media over like maybe 10 years and if you use it responsibly uh, you can learn a lot of things uh, we are always having good discussions where we discuss recent papers there's always someone who knows more than you do. So it's always nice to have always these comments where someone points something out or follow up material or, hey, have you thought about this and that? And yeah, I think it's basically, if you use it responsibly, um, it can be a very effective way for learning too. Yeah, for sure. Um, Sebastian, it, yeah, it has been so nice chatting with you. You're like a fountain of knowledge. I, I feel like there's so much that, that we could chat about more. We could do a, a whole other episode, maybe maybe sometime in the future. But sure. thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really I really appreciate it. Yeah, that was uh, fun. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, it was like a really fun hour to spend today. So yeah, thanks for inviting me. I had a lot of fun. And um, yeah, anytime again. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Learning from Machine Learning. I hope you enjoyed the insights and knowledge shared by Sebastian Roschka, a renowned author and machine learning expert. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to Sebastian's work and resources discussed in this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, keep on learning.